Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a couple pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it will be enjoyable and even edifying for all listeners, but especially equipping for pastors and teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. My name is John Drury, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Amy Peeler. Amy is no stranger to the show. She's been on a handful of times, an old friend, and uh, really appreciate her insights uh, and study of the scriptures. I've asked her to come on to discuss Psalm 8, which is the uh, psalm assigned for Trinity Sunday, the Sunday after Pentecost, uh, which is episode 180, 180 of this show. Uh, Amy is a professor of Bible at Wheaton College, just outside Chicago, and she's uh, the author of a number of books, one on the book of Hebrews and another uh, recent publication on Mary, the mother of God. So I'm so delighted to have Amy on to discuss Psalm 8 today. As you're listening to the show today, uh, if you're finding yourself enjoying it and want to pass it on to others, just click on the share button on your podcast player app of choice and send it along so that others can enjoy the show. Most people find out about the show through word of mouth, so that's the best way to get the word out about the show. And if you'd like to support us uh, financially or otherwise, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and find ways to become a patron saint of the show. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Amy. All right, so read it in whatever translation you wish and we'll run from there. Okay, great. All right, Psalm 8. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God. You crowned them with glory and honor. You've given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your name in all of its majesty, and we give you thanks that you are the creator and that all the created things listed here in this psalm and beyond everything listed here too, that these are all your creatures and that we too are your creatures. And so we ask now as your humble creatures that you would give to us a portion of your spirit to follow your word, to catch a glimpse and be in tune with its rhythms and its meaning for us today. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So Amy, what do you, what do you notice here in Psalm eight in this brief, but meaty Psalm? 
What's uh, what's interesting here to you today? Uh, it is so poetic and beautiful, even reading it out loud, uh, which is always a good thing to do. It's beautifully set. I was reading there from the NRSV, and uh, I think we could probably get to some of the translational decisions. This is a, a chief place for thinking about inclusive versus exclusive translations. So that's definitely something to pay attention to. But I was initially struck as you prayed, the praise of God's name, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and then that humans really are put as God's stewards. Uh, I've been doing some reading by uh, J. Richard Middleton. He's a great scholar of the image of God, creation narrative, doing some of that last night. And so immediately what struck me is that humans get to be God's representatives. And so that comes out in their stewardship over other parts of creation, but it's almost like God's name is glorified and praised by human presence on the earth. That image, uh, again, creation pieces are very present in this psalm. As far as I can tell, like the the language, unless there's something hitting that I'm missing, the actual language of the image of God doesn't appear in the psalm. That's right. But the, That's but right. the concept seems to be mm. operative, mm-hmm. right? Well said. So I'm trying to remember there's that, Famous language of it's translated subdue, I think, right. in the King James. I'm trying to think if there's any variants of that. Again, the concept is at work here, you know, when it talks about being, you know, under the feet, right? Right. And actually, the rule verse, I think it's six, maybe in English. Right. Six in English. Uh huh. I wonder if that word bears any resonance with that term in Genesis. I don't know. It'd be a, a quick check, maybe live right now. We could look it up, but let's see. What was that? Uh, you have made him to have dominion. I'm, I'm trying to, I didn't have, I don't have the NRSV out. So yes, you've given them dominion over the works of your hands. So I have here both Hebrew and Greek up. So let me check this here. So yeah, it is Masal. Mashal. I don't think that's the one in Genesis. Yeah, it shows up in Genesis. I just went and looked oh, real great. quick. It's, so Genesis one eighteen, it's the govern or rule the the sun to rule over the day. Oh, that's not one. the not the human one. And during the the little passage towards the end of Genesis three, of the your desire will be for your husband, and he will that famous. Yes, he shall rule over you. As well as Genesis four seven, the. Sin is crouching at the door. Exactly. Right. And it's desires for you, but you should rule over it. Again, you get the same desire and rule Mm -hmm. pattern that appears in Genesis 3. Exactly. There it is in 4 with Cain. So, yeah, it does does show up, but it's not a – yeah, it's not that same term that appears when God sort of commissions this. Uh, So, that's kind of interesting. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and the in the places in Genesis, it has really almost a negative commentation, but that's not true here. Yeah, in two of these, I guess the the sun ruling over the day would be, although even that's kind of striking, right? That that would be the the parallel, right? You know? right. So yeah, as as you said earlier, it's not exact kind of the exact verbal links, but more the general ideas of creation that are present here. So it could be a fun thing to explore how readers might make associations between the Genesis narrative and this, even if it's not a direct verbal link. Yeah. That, that notion of the human as ruling or governing doesn't appear till 
right about verse six. It's towards the end, and it's kind of interesting. Okay, now I'm now I'm very struck. So you know, if you have verse in verse three, you have you know when I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you fixed firm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that is all terminology. Again, to use an old rabbinic trick of the, you know, the first time a word appears right. in the Hebrew Bible is to be taken note of. Yes. Uh, so if the first time it appears, it appears with reference to, to this moon, stars, sun, you know, these objects in the heavens that, right. that rule over the day and night. So it's like those would maybe be the fitting thing to rule over all the animals, right? Because when it gets to verse… Huh. Six, you know, you, you, you cause him to, to rule over the work of your hands, all things you've set under his feet. Okay. It is saying everything, but then it does proceed to list them and it's all the animals that are listed, which is curious. So almost as if, okay, you know, I guess you don't exactly rule over the sun, moon and stars. They set, they kind of set the calendar. Yes. Um, but then underneath that, then you're kind of in charge of all the living things seems to be the implication that the living things are are under the authority of the human being. I, I don't mean to undermine the all things statement, but it, it does kind of, at least in the context, that's the emphasis is on these living things, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it is all things, but then verses seven and following help you know what all things are in mind. So yeah, the, I think there is a, a kind of a circumscribing of the all there, all the things on earth, but that's, it, it, it is a striking distinction that the it's not the things in the heavens that's the realm of god and then god has put humans to have dominion over the earth yeah yeah so i mean isn't there a i mean i can turn there i suppose i do i do have a bible um <laughs> but i'm thinking of that passage in genesis 1 now isn't there some listing of some animals there yes yes and it it, it strikes me as it's a very similar list here. <laughs> and, and this gets repeated, actually, this kind of list of the different beings, the different types of animals uh, okay. are kind of evoked several times, actually, in New Testament literature. Paul will have this list a few times when he's referring back to the creation narrative. Yeah, verse 28, it is from Genesis 1, right? The rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air mm -hmm. and over every living creature that moves on the ground or the earth yeah, uh, or the land. So this is a slightly more specific sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heaven, fish of the sea, and what moves along the paths of the sea. So partially because it's written in poetic form. So it wants to do these little doublet, these little couplets, right? Right. Right. Yeah. So we don't have to go here now, but I mean, mine as well. You said there was something important about the costs and benefits of inclusive language in the translation here. Do you want to, do you want to turn to that? Sure. Sure. So different English translations will choose to do this differently. I've been reading, I read from the NRSV, which chooses to, to be inclusive, talking about in the plural of all humanity. But that's that's not exactly the most wooden way to treat the text. Uh, for verse five, what is anthropos? Yeah, I'm reading from the Septuagint at the moment. What is 
a human or anthropos could be man or the son of an anthropos. So it is very, uh, it's a masculine singular rather than a neuter plural, which is what we're given in English. Now, of course, I don't think that's a bad move to do the neuter plural because even as is true in Genesis, Adam, the Adam can be representative for all, but I think it gets a bit more important when this psalm is used in Hebrews. And I think we've actually had that conversation or we, we've talked a bit about in Hebrews 2, where there is explicitly a connection made with Jesus as the representative human. There, I think the demand is that it's important to at least communicate that singular language. But here in the psalm, I'm a bit more comfortable with with saying, well, yeah, this is how language work then. You could have kind of one man as representative for all. So that's just a good thing for preachers to be aware of, recognizing that people in your congregation, if they're using Bibles, they may have what sound like really pretty different uh, translations here. Yeah, so the I think I hear you saying that the psalm in its original context, and if you're studying the psalm on its own terms, right. the translation of a kind of abstract noun is appropriate because it's the point. Right. It's it's talking about humanity in general, but just recognizing that, you know, son of man comes to take on this almost technical, not just Hebrews, but the whole of the New Testament. Right. Right. And so that's such a challenge because a, a phrase like son of man, which is in many ways like a backbone in the Gospels. Right. Jesus' favorite way of describing in this kind of third person way of talking about himself and the beautiful ambiguity because – at first glance, the son of man can seem like the most kind of humble name. I'm thinking of the first time he uses son of man in the book of Mark. Mm. He references so that you may know the son of man has authority on earth Yes, to forgive sins. So even the language of authority on earth has resonances even with this psalm. That's right. And then later in that chapter, a little bit about the Sabbath made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and that the son of man is even Lord of the Sabbath. Again. At that point in the story, he could, it could sound like he's just saying human beings have authority to forgive, yeah, right? Or human beings are Lord of the Sabbath, mm-hmm. and it may be that that is part of what he's saying, you know. And but then as it kind of unfolds, you know, Son of Man also functions as this very exalted title from Daniel. And so, if you strip every use of Ben Adam from your Old Testament translations, then all of a sudden this just sounds like this made up phrase right, right. in the New Testament. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very much with you. I mean, I'm not picking a fight. I'm just, I'm, I'm with you in saying, I think on its own terms, it's, it's totally a fine choice, but you know, you do it enough times and all of a sudden you sever the old and New Testament connections, you know, if you, yeah. if you do it all the time. So I'm very torn. Yeah, that's that's actually a really great point. That's a good thing to reflect on. Again, the unity of the scriptures, the way in which Israel's scriptures prepare then listeners to hear the coming of Christ. So, I mean, that has to be done with with great care. But you're exactly right. If if this is diminished, if that connection is diminished, then that does make hearing this title for Christ less easy to understand that connection. Yeah. It's always a hard choice, actually. Yeah. These are never simple things. So that's a good reminder. Yeah. And some of it might be, you know, and and I don't want to jump the gun, but there is a sort of 
a preaching decision that's going to need to be made. Like, you know, what, what am I preaching on? Am I using this text as a jumping point to talk about humanity in general or talk about how Jesus sort of fulfills that right. image of God? Boy, that's, it's kind of tough and you kind of almost have to, you might end up finding yourself, you know, but I hate cooking the books and like selecting your translation based on the point you want to make. You know, that also feels like cheating, you know, um, maybe it's better to just kind of acknowledge, Hey, there's differences here. Exactly. And this is a week when we're going to explore that a little bit because it, if it's relevant right, to the topic of the week. Yeah. I think that that really honors your listeners by you don't have to belabor every language decision, but just maybe to mention when there are significant departures in translation so that people, you know, then they, if they want to know more, they can go and research it. It doesn't have to be the focus of the sermon, but I do think it should be mentioned. People are hungry, I think, to hear the complexities of what goes on in translation, even if you don't linger there for the whole sermon. Yeah. Well, that brings another translation oddity. So the very first line. So let's, uh, let's take a quick break and come back and talk about that. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Amy Peeler, and we're looking at Psalm 8. Psalm 8. I'll get it in our ears again. Yeah. Uh, this is from Robert Alter's version. So for the lead player on the Gittith, a David Psalm. Lord, our master, how majestic your name in all the earth, whose splendor was told over the heavens. From the mouth of babes and sucklings, you founded strength on account of your foes to put an end to enemy and avenger. When I see your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you fixed firm, what is man that you should note him and the human creature that you pay him heed and you make him little less than the gods with glory and grandeur, you crown him. You make him rule over the work of your hands, all things you set under his feet, sheep and oxen all together and all the beasts of the field, birds of the heavens and fish of the sea, what moves on the paths of the seas. Lord, our master, how majestic your name in all the earth. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, so Lord, our Master, I think in RSV had Lord, our Sovereign. Did it say our? Or? That's right. Oh, Lord, okay. our Sovereign. Uh-huh. I know this is one of those fun moments because the, the Greek Septuagint that gets quoted in the New Testament, this has kurie, Ha kurios hemon, Lord, our Lord. Yes. And I think that's what the King James has, Lord, our Lord. Although the first Lord is in little tiny uppercase yes. Lord. And then the second one is the other Lord. So this is one of these, these moments where you have this, where you have to make a judgment call about how to translate right. the divine name and yeah. the standard way of doing that, of doing the uppercase Lord actually creates a confusion because you have the word back to back here. <laughs> so it's 
you have significant translation variety trying to cope with the the misleading lord double lord basically that you get there i don't know if you had any thoughts on on that in general and psalm 8 in particular i mean i know psalm 8 psalm 110 has this double lord business that seems to become so important in the new testament in the book of hebrews in particular so i mean it's like psalm 8's like amy territory it's like (laughs) i really wanted you on this psalm but (laughs) no it's i mean it's so interesting in the hebrew because there you have the holy name of God, right? So the capital Lord, Yahweh. And then you have Adonainu, so like our Lord. And Adonai, of course, that's the the other way of saying Lord that is used when Jews choose to pronounce the holy name. So you have those right next to each other in the Hebrew. So I think the English translations are seeking to make sense of that distinction, right? To to let you know there are actually two different terms going on here. But as you said, the Septuagint uses the same. But that's, of course, how the Septuagint translates the name of God is with Kurios, or when Adonai is there, it's Kurios. So they're being faithful to what they normally do, but you lose the distinction. That could be a fun place, I think, to... I find that that's really powerful with students to kind of bring them into the world in which Jewish people have such deep respect for God's name. They're hesitant to say it out loud. I think that's usually really striking. I'm not saying that's the only way to go about it, but I think it is a healthy reminder for those who do have this sense of accessibility to God, also of God's holiness, so that it has both terms right here in the psalm. Could be really powerful. I'm struck by the translation, Alter's translation, O Lord, our master. It reminds me of Sarah Rudin's translation of Augustine's Confessions, and she will frequently use the terminology of master. And if I remember her introduction correctly, she said she actually wants the kind of discomfort of that term for modern readers, right? Kind of evoking almost the master-slave relationship, which of course, is utilized in in the New Testament, talking about Christians' uh, relationship with God, to say, yeah, God really is in control. And Lord has become a bit church-ease, right? We're kind of used to it. Yeah, it's become a religious term, even though it's not. Yeah, it's a political word. Exactly. But master is like, oh, I wouldn't I wouldn't call anyone my master, right? But actually, that maybe is what we should do. So I think I really love that translation. Yeah, especially because the whole psalm then manages to then tell a story Mm. of human inclusion in God's mastery. Yeah. It can start out as like a contrast of master and slave, Mm. but then it turns out that the human who it would fit to be a nobody or even a slave in this story is not, is actually included in, again, not using the same term, but the concept of mastery is kind of being donated and shared and participating in it. Yes. And that's a really like encouraging, elevating way to think of humans. My brain was almost going in a different direction of if humans get to thinking they're all high and mighty as those who have dominion of the earth, they need to be reminded that they too have a master to whom they are responsible, much like the household codes in the New Testament, right? Right. Masters be kind to your slave because you have a master in heaven. It's kind of like almost unarming their sense of power in some ways. In some ways, it's super encouraging. You're lowly. But if you think real high of yourself, remember, you're not the ultimate. Yeah, it's almost like that's one of the benefits of the inclusio at the end. Yes. That it comes back to it. But yeah, you're still not the master master, right? (laughs) 
this is a a subordinate mastery of some sort. Yes. Wow. I guess the reason is because it talks about his name immediately, you know? Yeah. And then, and it does make you wonder if there's something different between the majesty and splendor. I'd have to check the words and the glory and grandeur given to the human. I mean, our in verse five, are these roughly equivalent or is there a, is there a kind of uh, more contained uh, meaning to glory and grandeur uh, that aren't as expansive as majesty and splendor? I don't know. That's a, that's a tough I mean, question. The, the Hebrew here is kavod. I mean, for glory. And so that's, that's what's used of, of God. Yeah. I can't get heavier than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's, Pretty something again. It it really does strike me. It's not image language explicitly, but there's that sense, right? Even th- that linkage between image and glory that's often often evoked. So, yeah, no, I see those connections. So while we're playing with these contrasts, let's take a look at verse two because that right. has another one of these, and it's a little less developed, I guess, in the psalm. But you also have a kind of a juxtaposition between, you know, victory over enemies and the mouths of babes and sucklings. What's kind of going on there? That that's the verse that I don't I know the least of what to do with in this psalm. I kind of get the rest of it, I feel. It does strike me that you have this picture of vulnerability, weakness, and that is how God displays power. So it's out of the mouths of babes and infants, like crying, right? That would be inarticulate, uh, need-based. That's how God has founded a bulwark to silence the enemy and an avenger. It reminds me of so many of the narratives in Israel's scriptures in which God's people are weak and defeat a great enemy in order to display it's not human power, but it's God supporting them. That's that's basically the story of Israel. Who are they? And yet God has elected them or, or Gideon, I think is a, is the other great example, which also appears in Revelation. That's something having to do with all the numbers of the people involved in battle, the 144,000, as opposed to 2 million, yet still they're going to win because God is on their side. So that's one resonance. It strikes me, too, that this is evoking kind of a familial picture, right? We definitely have creation, but it's, I don't know, God has entrusted humanity with stewardship, not as kind of a distant employer or something, but by in bringing in this picture of infants, you do kind of have this household of God family picture that I think is an important theme of God's sovereignty. God doesn't just set humans up as other maybe ancient Near Eastern cultures to do the dirty work. But God said, no, like in my home, I want you to care well, because this is all the place where we dwell together or will ultimately dwell together. Oh, that's helpful. That does help me connect with it a little bit because it does. I mean, the first thing you said about the way that God sort of uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, to to use a phrase from Paul, that's just very thematic of, the covenant history of Israel. But like, you know, most of this Psalm is creation language. It's not embedded in that. I I mean, it's obviously on the lips of, of Israel as one of their Psalms, but that covenant history is not out in the forefront. It seems right. right? 
And so verse two seems a little kind of out of place a little bit. Right. Or is that just me? Am I? No, I, I think that, I mean, always a good experiment is could you cut verse two and would everything else make sense? Like, yes, more uh, sense exactly, to me. Exactly. It's, no, it's I think much that because you cleaner. go right from magnificence raised beyond the heavens to because I will observe the heavens. Yeah. Yeah. When I see you even have the heavens catch word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's that interjection doing there? What's it, what's it providing? Is it adding something different? Is it, can we interpret it in creation terms? Are there, is there an insight there? I mean, you're hinting at one, even with the the notion of the family imagery that all of this majesty and dominion talk could sound a little, like you say, appointed to do the dirty work but who's the enemy and the avenger and the foes if it's creation language or is this the kind of defeat of chaos kind of thing is that, that a possible that way of taking it thought, especially i thought about that when you have the list of animals that we were looking at earlier and you have the reiteration of whatever passes along the paths of the seas or sea being the classic place of chaos the beasts of the sea so i do think there's kind of uh, chaos being evoked there um, so that would make sense as the enemy. It does strike me that this verse comes in between the contemplation of the heavens. And it just always strikes me like when I go outside and when we're in a place where there's not a lot of light pollution and I see all of the universe or I talk to one of my astronomy colleagues and think about the vastness of the universe, then that you get that kind of sense of exactly as the psalmist says, what are humans, right? In the midst of this vastness. And so I do wonder if that interjection of the imagery of babes, nurslings, even in the Septuagint, it's those who are drinking milk, that that brings kind of a sense of intimacy. If you have a tendency to feel lost in the vastness of the heavens, then there's, nope, this is how God works through uh, the care of the small. Now, of course, unsurprisingly, maybe this is why you had me on, I do think there is a Christological foreshadowing here, right? How does God come to defeat enemies through one who is an apiois, a babe, one who is nursing? We've already talked a bit about the Son of Man <laughs> Christology going on here, but I think there's an incarnational nod as well. Again, in the sovereignty of God who puts together the scriptures, I think there's, and this is how I'll defeat the enemies, right? The enemies of creation named at the beginning, the enemy who seeks to divide and destroy. It will, it will be through the mouths of babes that defeat will come. See, you don't even need uh you don't even need to translate verse five as uh or four as a uh, son of man. And Amy can still find Jesus in a psalm. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> I'm yeah. This is why you need to have an Old Testament friend on to see if I've... Uh, but no, I, I want to respect what's going on in the psalm. But as a Christian reader, I think we were allowed to say, uh, where else could we see um, glimmers of what is to come? Well, I mean, the lectionary is kind of inviting us to do that mm-hmm. by assigning this as the psalm for uh, Trinity Sunday. So that is what this is for. I occasionally will mention this to listeners. If you're a new listener, you may not know this. I often don't tell my uh, guests what <laughs> what Sunday this text is for. I just work ahead and surprise them sometime during the second segment. So, boom, surprise. Yay. This is the Trinity Sunday Psalm. So, I think the, I think the Revised Common Lectionary is, is definitely inviting a yes. kind of Trinitarian use 
of which this this text certainly was uh, very important in the early centuries of Christianity as a alongside Psalm 110 and a handful of others that were really crucial for kind of seeing the the word that was made flesh in Jesus as the very creative word of God from the beginning and the fulfillment of Adam, the second Adam, the last Adam. Yeah. Um, and those two ideas come, you know, right into contact with each other in, again, not in the Psalm as such, but as the Psalm comes to be fulfilled in its larger setting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Hey, let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Amy Peeler, longtime friend of mine and relatively uh, longstanding friend of the show. It's been so great having you on a handful of times this year. Absolutely. You're a fantastic guest. So you are a preacher in a denomination and local church that kind of follows the church year very closely in the Revised Common Lectionary. Is that right? That's correct. So what is... I mean, we don't have to spend much time on this, but what does Trinity Sunday usually look like for you in your experience? I know it's the usually the Sunday right after Pentecost. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. So this is the psalm assigned for that Sunday. What does that usually look like in worship in general and in preaching? What's been your experience with Trinity Sunday? It's a wonderful Sunday because there's such a rich choral tradition. And so it really is a wealth of opportunity for the choir to pick. Uh, really, you could do like the fourth verse of every hymn or the last verse of every hymn, which tends to be a Trinitarian verse. So there's richness there. I love as a New Testament person to highlight to our congregation the places where the text is encouraging and kind of moving toward Trinitarian thinking, which of course is developed several hundred years later, but they're not like coming up with this in the 300 and 400 by themselves, right? It is within the text. And so that's, that's something that's part of my preaching probably almost every time of, oh, see how we have the activity of the persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit Uh, This is what moves then early Christians to the creed that we confess together each week. So I think that's a really important part. As we then read from the Old Testament, as we've talked about already, you kind of have, again, these images that are in alignment with the New Testament. So it's not like the New Testament is inventing Trinity, right? We have the movement of God. Father, Word, Spirit in the text of Israel scripture. So showing that coherence, I think might be important, especially if maybe a more educated set might be kind of exposed to criticisms of Christianity, that it's all just kind of invented by a group of a a council. No, really, these are very organic ideas of the being of God being multiplicity, even within the affirmation of the one God, which is so vital for the confession of early Jews and Christians. So those are a few of the things that end up happening. It is a good Sunday. (laughs) It is a beautiful Sunday. Yeah. From a kind of worship point of view, especially if you, if you rely on hymns and hymnody, you're going to you're going to have a lot to work with. Yes. Um, It's, it's often can be tricky to, to preach on the Trinity in this direct way. 
you know, cause it can turn into a lecture. Um, and that's not all bad, but it's, it's risky, especially if you were to take a Psalm as an entry point, you know, mm. Psalms get especially spoiled when they're sort of turned into a bunch of facts and points when it's meant to be more evocative and poetic. On the break, you and I glanced at, and this is a way of thinking that through a little bit, another poetic text that's suggested for this Sunday, and conveniently also an eight, which is just cute. Yeah. <laughs> maybe too cute, but but Proverbs 8, mm. which was, you know, at least in my studies of early Christian developments in the Doctrine of Trinity, this was like a central proof text and like lots of lots of ink spilled over how to interpret Proverbs 8. And it makes me kind of wonder, because there's a little game being played both in Psalm 8 and in Proverbs 8 around God's majesty, dominion, wisdom, etc. And then the human being as both this lowly and exalted figure. And I'd like to just read Psalm Eight, not all of it, but the the recommended selection from the lectionary, just to see if I wonder if there could be a. I could see reading these two next to each other, and coming up with a sort of creative, and evocative kind of sermon. It might be a little less. Let me walk you through the doctrine exactly, and right. a little more. Let me invite you into the doctrine as a living reality. So let me just read this real quick. So. Does not wisdom call and does not understanding raise her voice on the heights beside the way at the crossroads? She takes her stand beside the gate in front of the town at the entrance of the portal. She cries out to you, O people, I call and my cry is to all that live. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. When he had not yet made earth and fields or the world's first bits of soil, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, and when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the human race. So there you, I mean, for, yeah. Lots of things to notice. One is you, you almost you almost can free yourself up to say son of man and use that masculine singular in Psalm 8. Precisely. If you get the contrast of the feminine of wisdom. Right. And let these be two ways of speaking of similar but not identical yes. ideas. Yes. Yeah. And, the, you know, humanity shows up right there at the end, you know, as if to say, well, it's only once this wisdom is imbued into the human that the human then has what it takes to be over all of this stuff that gets created. Yes. You know, so you get the son of man at the, at the end of creation on the sixth day being kind of placed in authority over the living things. 
but this image of wisdom, lady wisdom already there before all that stuff. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like there's something there, you yes. know, John one just makes so much more sense when it's read with Proverbs eight behind it, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And that's of the course word how became the first readers would have connected with it, mm-hmm. right? They, they had this idea of an aspect of God or a manifestation of God. And so then John personalizes that to his friend, but that's the way they would have been thinking. Yeah, no, that's exactly some of the same thoughts that struck me. It's a, it's a beautiful passage. And, and really, it's one of those instances in which preachers probably should do less work than more work and just let the text, the beauty of the text, let people hear it. And so not to kind of crowd it out, maybe, uh, but to let it breathe with any insights that you can provide, but let people hear the poetry. That's a good word, as you said, not to kind of over intellectualize and formalize poetic readings. As a pair of bookish intellectuals say that, exactly, right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> this is physician the, the, heal the thyself, calling right? The kettle black, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, maybe it's a time for some imagery. I mean, it, and it doesn't mm-hmm. hurt that it's, you know, it's we're coming into the summer months. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I could imagine taking a little extra time, like you say, doing less work instead of more mm-hmm. with words and maybe a little with, like I could see – carefully selecting some great pictures or just as good. I mean, I'm almost like kind of want to tell my, I want to tell our listeners who might be preaching or teaching, like maybe take these two Psalms, print them out on a you mean piece of paper, Proverbs, right? me, the Psalm and the proverb, excuse me. Thank you. And like, maybe get their, you know, their camera and go outside and take some pictures, mm. you know, like there could be some natural pictures, images of nature that exegete these texts better yeah. than my explaining. Right. Do. Right. Right. Now that's a little tricky on an audio format of a podcast right now. I'm kind of like, I'm not really, we're not really doing that. Yes. We're talking about doing right. that, but I feel like there might be something, something there to consider. I could see reading these, this Psalm and this proverb slowly, carefully with some images synced up that would help us experience them differently. No, that's a great reminder. I think I I put that hat on in the classroom. I, I recognize that there are different types of learners and just sitting and listening is not the best for everyone. But I so rarely put that hat on for preaching. And so that's a that's a good reminder to also recognize that people connect with the truths of God in different ways. Yeah. I wonder why that is. I mean, I think, I think I'm the same as you in that regard. I, I, now some of them I have to just do with the time. If I'm in a classroom, it's going to be 60, 90 minutes. And I'm thinking, how do I introduce some variety? Yes, that's true. But in a preaching setting tends to be more 20, 25, and maybe even less for you as in a as an Episcopalian, we, I don't we, know. We it depends. 20 or 25. I oh, think good. Okay. unusually well, long. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I tend to really focus in on the, the spoken word, mm-hmm. um, the unadorned spoken word. Right. When I preach. And I'm not ashamed of that, but it is curious that, that I'm not inclined that way in a classroom. And it sounds like you're the same to try to introduce some variety. Although I'm notoriously bad at actually involving image in my teaching. I'm just like, 
eh, that's too much work. I'm just too lazy. I can just show up and talk, you know. But, you know, these are so visually stimulative. Right. Texts, Psalm 8 and Proverbs 8, just so much describing of the created world. Yeah. That it invites something. I was just going to say, this could also be a great place to, if you're doing any kind of reading on science and theology, that's something I truly enjoy is kind of learning about the discoveries that scientists are making about the beauty of the universe. So uh, if you have time or if you're already exposed, this could be a great thing. You know, we know a a whole lot more about creation in some ways than maybe was true when the psalm was written. I think in other ways, we've lost our wonder, maybe. I'm about to attend a science and theology conference, and this could be a great place to show that those aren't bifurcated, distant, or maybe even at odds worlds, but you could bring in the insights as you explicate the poetic. Oh, I love that, especially because, I mean, this will date the podcast if someone checks it out later, but man, well, it it won't be dated for a while because the James Webb teles what is it called a uh, telescope? Yeah, takes pictures. It's this new like it's just getting up and running. We're just getting new images from it, even in the last couple weeks. Oh man, have you have you looked at James Webb stuff? No, at all? I haven't. Hey, I oh, heard man, a little you, blip about it on the radio, but then I didn't follow it up. So that yeah, sounds amazing. Well, that's that's a that's a YouTube hole you'll be in tonight. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> check it out; it's really awesome. Some of the stuff that's coming. I mean, this is like it's really Hubble 2.0, but oh, like wow. way more, just a whole nother level of of uh, the way that it blocks the sun and it's out in orbit around the Earth and it's wow. able to to take pictures of really distant galaxies and it's really amazing and really beautiful. Wow. And, and has that effect that this Psalm is trying to create, which is this kind of overwhelmedness. Yes. Yes. And it may take sometimes modern um, hearers of the word. It may take unfamiliar imagery Mm. of distant galaxy to to help us feel small again because we've gotten used to looking up at the sky and saying, Oh yeah, we know what all that stuff is now, you know? So there may be an opportunity there for some, some majesty mediated through, you know, scientific uh, discovery and methods. I think that's what I would do. And now I'm kind of like wishing I was preaching on this. I, I would find some way as you've just articulated to capture that sense of smallness again, either through some kind of beautiful picture that if, you know, I could display for the congregation in some way, or to tap into this kind of new discoveries in science. I think I would try to get that sense of smallness. And then I might, because what's really stimulating to me exegetically is what we've named as this interruption of verse two. So I think I would start with the vastness, the beauty of creation, and then like, read the Psalm without verse two, and then be like, well, what's going on here? I think that's the direction I would go with the sermon. Oh, I love it. That's really fun. Well, that's a fun little, I mean, we talked about it exegetically, but to even do that in a sermon, to leave something out and then reread it with it in there, that would be really, really cool. I've I've done that before fairly recently, and I would have to go back. I forget easily what I've done, but I did, uh, I did read a text without a key passage and showed how well it flowed and then had the conversation of, well, what do we do with the interruptions? That's very rabbinic, right? <laughs> oh yeah. No, that's, that's, that's very exciting. Yeah. The, the vast and then the small. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a lovely sermon. I hope you get to preach it. 
I uh, if not this too. year, some other time. Right, so. right. Sounds like you're not on deck for uh, Trinity Sunday this year. Uh, you know, the other interesting thing about us is that we almost always go home to visit our family that Sunday. So I'm usually at church with my in-laws. So Well, there you go. Yes. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Well, thanks so much, Amy. I appreciate your time and your insight. It's always a blast to have you on the show. Appreciate it a ton. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for the work you do with this. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing the show without you. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. Thanks so much, Tom. And thanks to all our listeners, especially those who support the show. If you'd like to support the show, uh, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and see ways you can become a patron saint of the show. And with that, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>